Okay, really excited about this episode. If you liked my last podcast episode where I spoke with Chris Keane from the Sydney Swans about recruiting in the AFL and using data to improve recruiting decisions, then you're going to love this episode. This is taking Moneyball to the next level. This is using Moneyball as your investment strategy. I'm speaking with Michael Schwimmer, the CEO of Big League Advance. When I first heard Michael describe his story and his business, I was that excited to find out more. It's certainly not an investment strategy for everyone as it's high risk, high reward, but either way, it's a really interesting idea. Big League Advance is like a venture capital fund, but instead of investing in emerging businesses, they invest in minor league baseball players. I'm not talking about 16, 17, 18 year olds, but guys in their mid-20s that are still trying to make it. They invest in minor league baseball players by buying a percentage of the player's future earning capacity. If the players never make the big league roster, then they can keep their payments. It's, it's not a loan. Michael grew up in Virginia in the US. He's a former professional baseball player with, from Philadelphia. He was drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies in the 14th round in 2008. He founded BLA when he was just 29 years old. He's now 32, and to date, the company has signed around 134 players with an average payment of around $350,000. With no further ado, you're listening to The Richards Report, and here is my discussion with Michael Schwimmer. You're listening to The Richards Report, where we will speak with investment experts from around the country. We will cut through the jargon to allow you to make more insightful investment decisions for your future. This is The Richards Report. Michael, thanks very much for joining me. Um, I understand that you were good at many sports. So was it always baseball? And and also, before you answer that, how tall actually are you? (laughs) Um, I am 6'8", and uh, I've always been a huge fan of really anything to do with competition. And and sports was a great outlet for me. Um, I loved playing football, basketball, baseball growing up and eventually did choose to play baseball, but it was a it was a very tough decision. It really came down to baseball and basketball for me in high school and and ended up um, making a decision to play a sport that I had a deep passion for, which was baseball, even though I was at the time a, a much better basketball player. So so you were drafted how old were you when you were drafted into the, uh, the MLB? Yeah, so I went to the University of Virginia um, and graduated there. Uh, so in 2008, I was drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies. So that would uh, make me 22 years old at the time. Um, joined, joined the Philadelphia Phillies. And I don't know how, how well your audience knows baseball or, or the draft, but when I was playing, there was 50 rounds, and I was a 14th round draft pick. Um, and in baseball – so, so how, how many how many picks around? Yeah, so each team has one pick. Each team has one pick. So, so a total of approximately how many picks in the that uh, each draft? Oh, there are, gosh, I think it's I think it's around fifteen hundred or so. I mean, there, there there's a lot of picks, and it's because you have to fill, uh, you know, all these rosters, and so every major league team has six minor league teams below it. Uh, believe it or not, there's 7,000 minor leaguers currently playing the game of baseball, and, uh, and and less than less than 10% of them will play one day in the major leagues. So it's a very 
it's a very tough hill to climb, you could say. Okay, and of that ten percent, let's let's go even further. What percentage of that original seven thousand do you think will actually end up having a decent career from a salary point of view? Yeah, it's about three percent or so. It's like two point eight to be exact. We'll, we'll end up getting getting to and through the arbitration process. So in baseball, your first three years in the major leagues, you're on the rookie scale. So you're making about $500,000 a year. And then it, and then there's the team has another three years of control in arbitration. And then after that, you become a free agent. So in baseball, the draft is extremely important uh, to, to make sure you get good quality players because you do have them under team control for a long time. And that's why you see a lot of trades. And you'll see like, oh, my God, this, this great player got traded for somebody I've never heard of. Well, that player is a big prospect who the team has a lot of years – of control over. So if he ends up being a good player, it ends up being a great deal for that team. So going back to 2008, when you were drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies, what can you give us a bit of insight as to kind of what salary you would have been uh, offered back then? Yeah, well, there wasn't an offer. <laughs> it was I, okay. it leave it. Um, and all, all minor league players make $5,000, excuse me, $5,500 a year. And so it is, extremely difficult and borderline impossible to do if, if you don't do anything in the off season. So the baseball season goes really spring training starts in March and, and it'll finish up at the minor leagues in September. And again, during that time you're making $5,500 in total and the team doesn't pay for anything either. So you have to, you're having to find your own housing and you're looking at short-term leases with, with you could get called up to a different city any day and you're having to deal with two leases. I mean, it's a, it's a logistical nightmare and, and you don't get paid really anything to do it, which is why you see standards of, of minor league living so low. You see these, you know, my teammates would uh, lease out a five, 600 square foot studio and there'd be eight people sleeping in it. You just, the entire floor you cover with mats or mattresses and then you have a refrigerator, and that's it. So even though you've been drafted, you're by no means set. No, yeah, that's right. And as a 14th round pick out of the 50 rounds, my signing bonus was $5,000. So most people think that, oh, you, you got drafted, your signing bonus is in the millions. Yeah, if you're a first round pick. But the vast majority of players um, were in the same boat that I was. And can you please give us a bit of color as to your story from there and what led to you uh, forming Big League Advance? Absolutely. So... I played about three years in the minor leagues and again, seeing what I saw in the minor leagues as, as we've described and seeing how, how players live and how tough it was. And then fortunately for me being called up to the major leagues, I was called up to the Phillies in 2011, um, have a little over two years of service time uh, with, with the Philadelphia Phillies and, and seeing how that side of it lives. And this is extreme gap. I mean, it's, it's, it's Motel 6 to the Ritz-Carlton. And I don't know if you have those in Australia, but uh, <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean. <laughs> but um, yeah, again, the lifestyle is very, very different. And it's something that I just personally didn't think was right. And I've always wanted to get involved in the business of baseball. And as the. I also saw that you're in the, uh, the player union too. Yes, exactly. So when I was with the Phillies, we were actually the best team in baseball. So it was really cool. I got called up to the, the best team in baseball, won 101 games, won the division championship. And they nominated me to be the, the player rep 
for them in the union. And so I was honored to, to accept that and went to the union. I had this idea to get minor league players at least up to close to minimum wage, uh, roughly in that $30,000 a year mark. And my idea, and I built out this huge presentation, and my idea was if you just take all players that are making $5 million or more, so not the not the rookie scale, not even really the ARB guys, really the $5 million or more guys, and just took 1% out of their checks, and it'd be tax-free. So it wouldn't even come out of their checks. They just would never receive the money. So it's actually like half a percent to the players, bottom line. And then the owners would match that. You'd have about $30,000 a year for minor league players. So I had this presentation. I went to them. I said, this is what we should do to help these minor leaguers. And you know, they – basically told me, you know, take a lap, uh, you know, which is, I guess, an American expression of, of, of no chance. And and the reason is because the, the players union only represents major league players. They have no care for minor league players. So what they what they told me is like, look, we represent players in the union. And what you're asking us to do, like our job is to get more money to players. And what you're asking us to do is take money away from the players that we represent, which makes sense from a business standpoint. I actually... I was a little upset initially, but in thinking about it from their point of view, it did make sense. Um, it's just the system is set up in such a way that no one is looking out for these minor league players. And and these are players that are going to be 24, 25 with families that 90 plus percent are going to be out of the game. And now, now what are they going to do? And I've seen it happen to my friends over and over and over again. And I've always wanted to make a change. I tried through the union, didn't work out. And then um, I ended up getting getting hurt and started the the company Big League Advance, which which helps quite a few of those players. Yeah, so um, uh, in AFL, there's always the worry that you might do your knee at any stage, and I, being a pitcher, there's always the chance you might your arm might blow out or something like that. And unfo- unfortunately, you did hurt your shoulder. And um, can you tell us a bit about why that gave you the opportunity to um, start the business? Absolutely. So yeah, I did. I tore my labrum. Uh, it's a small. A uh, small piece of the shoulder there, and it's a year-long recovery for a pitcher. Um, and so, for that year, you, you really only can do about two hours worth of rehab a day. And so, I, I was with the—I had been traded to the Toronto Blue Jays at the time, and I spent two hours rehabbing, and then I had to fill up the rest of the day. And I'm—I'm I'm somebody that really likes to, really likes to keep busy. And and after kind of an initial stage of depression, which I'm sure anybody that's been a professional athlete that, that's got a career ending, potentially career ending injury. Can it's understand. very common. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, it was tough. And, and uh, you know, thank God I had a support team and a support group to kind of get me through that time. And that's when I really wanted to think about what am I going to do next? And, and coming from uh, university of Virginia, I had a very strong stats background and I wanted to create something that would help minor leaguers. So uh, I wanted to create a, a company and a business that would invest in these minor league players and share in their success um, while de-risking a lot of their career. So what we do as a company is we give players money up front in exchange for a future percentage of their major league earnings. So if they don't make it for any reason at all, injury or they retire or whatever, they keep all of the money. Um, and if they do make it, we get the agreed upon percentage um, in, in the contract. So it's really a situation for a player where 
Uh, and again, our, our average our average deals are in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions at times. And so you know, this money can, first off, really help them get to the major leagues and achieve their goals. What people don't understand, again, with this $5,500 a year, people like me, I was refing basketball games in the offseason, babysitting. You're picking up work wherever you can in order to get money to help you go live through the season. A lot of my teammates work in construction, Walmart greeters, they're really doing, again, anything they can to make money. Well, in that offseason is a huge time where you can train and really help your chances. But instead of doing that, you're trying to make money so you can live. And so this money we give them helps them, you know, be able to train and be able to give themselves the the best chance at at reaching their dreams. Yeah, to to invest in themselves. Exactly. I mean, really, it's exactly right. Um, you know, players have agents and they understand that relationship. And so what a player is betting on with an agent, and agents take about 5%. So the player is betting that the agent can get me 5% more in a deal than I could get myself, right? It's just kind of simple. Um, and a lot of the players look at our deal very similarly. They'll say, look, we might do a deal for 3 or 4% because, again, the players get to choose the equity they they give to us. What's what's the, the most common um, percentage of equity that uh, you might purchase or invest in? Well, it's it's up to the player. So let's say we have a, a five hundred thousand dollar offer for a player. Well, it'll be fifty thousand every one percent. So that five hundred thousand is the, is the max offer, which is ten percent. So some players might say, "Look, I just need two hundred thousand dollars, so I'll do two hundred thousand for four um, percent." And and so it really just varies on the player. Uh, a lot do choose to take the the ten percent, and a lot take substantially less. And it's 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 really where they are in their careers and what they think they need in order to give themselves the best chance to make it. This episode is brought to you by Six Park. Six Park is Australia's leading online investment service. We provide investment advice online and manage the portfolio for you too. Our portfolios invest in growth assets like Australian and international shares, property and defensive assets like infrastructure and bonds. It's completely free to take the Six Park Risk Assessment to see how Six Park would recommend investing your money for you. If you'd like to find out more, go to sixpark.com.au. And show notes for this episode with further information about Michael and Big League Advance will also be available on the Six Park website too. Okay, back to the discussion with Michael. If we could just take a, a step back before you started investing in players, it's not like you're going out there and just very subjective going, I like that player or I like that player. You you actually used that passion for statistics to build algorithms around, I guess, how you're going to make investments. Can you give us a bit of insight? I'm sure you've got um, some IP there you can't share with all the, what, what all the factors are, but um, how long did it take to build these algorithms? Yeah, so that was when I was hurt. Um, you know, going back to my time uh, being injured that two hours a day uh, in rehab and the rest of my day was spent modeling. And I actually uh, went to, I knew two people that had pretty deep pockets and good connections. And I originally didn't think I was going to do anything modeling related. I was like, look, I've been playing baseball my whole life. I know who's good and who's not. Let's invest in these guys. And both of them looked at me and these are savvy investors. And kind of the same look that the MLBPA gave me and was like, yeah, no chance. I mean, <laughs> there's thousands of people that can tell me who's good. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I'll prove it to you. So now that's when I want to do the math on it. And so I started doing the math for what I thought was going to be a month or two to basically confirm what I had already believed on players. 
And what it turned out was I had to take a, you know, really check my ego at the door. And it turned out that what I thought I knew about the game of baseball just was, was way off and not close. And the numbers were not supporting my original beliefs and my original thoughts. And, and it ended up then kind of get digging more and more and more. And I love these types of puzzles, and these types of problems. I was going at it 14, 16 hours a night on the spreadsheets and it ended up, you know, building the algorithms it ended up taking me more than a year of my life doing it. And it was, you know, looking back now with obviously our company, the success that we've had and looking back at that time, it's pretty surreal, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it took me again, 14, 16 hours a day for more than a year, analyzed over 28,000 minor league seasons to figure out what are minor league players doing that are the attributes of what they're doing to, to equate to major league success or not. And by what degrees, because our offers are greatly different on a player by player basis. Some of our offers are in the, you know, 80, hundred thousand range. And some of our offers are in the multi-million dollar range, depending on, depending on the player. So uh, that, that's what the model provides. And, and we simply use the model as a tool to know how much we offer players. And just looking at your uh, story, I can see that going to a healthcare conference was, seems to be a bit of a, um, a sliding doors moment for you too. <laughs> yes, that was, that was the biggest break the company has ever, I personally ever had and the company's had by far. So, um, you know, I had... Uh, when I was going to raise money for this. And and so, again, I did all the math. I, I then spent a year after doing the math, writing the business plan, doing the lawyers, figuring out the legality of all of this, how we're going to structure contracts. And then I was ready to go get, uh, you know, raise the money. And my original plan, I wanted to raise $25 million to start this. And I went out and I uh, had a good group of investors that were my base investors. So we ended up raising a couple million dollars there. And then for the next probably four to six months going at, a lot of people were in, but really in for the minimum. They didn't understand the minimum at the time was 250,000. So I was getting a lot of people, but really all the $250,000 range. And after six months, I had got up to about maybe five to 8 million, somewhere in that range before this healthcare conference happened. And one of my buddies uh, asked me to join this healthcare conference uh, if I wanted to go with him or not. And I, you know, like healthcare is nothing, has nothing to do with me. If like, no, no, thank you. And he's like, well, I just didn't know that the guest speaker is Paul De Podesta. And for those of the listeners that don't know Paul, uh, he is um, pretty undisputed, the most influential general manager in all of baseball. He was featured in the book Moneyball and the movie was played by, was played by Jonah Hill. And so uh, he's kind of a hero of mine. And he was the general manager of the Mets when I was playing for the Phillies. So our paths crossed quite a bit. We're in the same division. So I went to meet him. And he, of course, uh, recognized me from my time with the Phillies, asked me what I was doing. I told him what I was doing. And his face just just went white and said, wait, I got to go speak at this conference it, you know, we got to meet afterwards. I'm canceling my flight back to Cleveland and we got to talk about this, which at the time for me was, I mean, my heart sank. I mean, I was so happy and just the entire time listening to him talk, I was anxious and on edge. And then uh, after his time speaking at the conference, we came, we came back and he goes, I want to tell you something. In 2004, I was going to do exactly what you were doing. I had everything lined up. I even had the money raised. And then the Los Angeles Dodgers called me and asked me to be the GM of their team. And at the time, he was the assistant general manager at the, for the Oakland Athletics, again, that, that Moneyball money ball team. 
And he said he, he was 50-50 on it, and him and his wife decided to sort of take the safer route and be the GM of the Dodgers. He goes, I've been waiting 12 years for somebody like you to come up to me and tell me you're doing this. I got to be a part of it. So that was a huge break. And then him coming on and you know, what he was able to figure out in the game of baseball and really transform my models to, to levels that were significantly more predictive was – was quite quite amazing, and uh, we've been partners ever since. What, what great vindication that you were um, you were onto something good. And I just I just want to say I looked up Paul, and I, I just want to say that I feel I feel bad for him because Jonah Hill looks nothing like him. He's he's quite <laughs> he's quite a good looking bloke. You should get Paul. You should get Paul on the show, and he'll tell you about it. It's a pretty really funny story, actually. So um, Paul Paul is someone with uh, some just incredible amount of integrity, character. If you, his reputation, if you go in the game of baseball and general managers, very few have sort of pristine reputations, and, and he's one of them. And you, you can't go around baseball and find anybody to say anything negative about Paul. And I asked him, I was like, Jonah Hill, and keep in mind, Paul was a wide receiver at Harvard. Like, he, he's an athlete. And um, I was like, you little, he's maybe, what, 180 pounds soaking wet. And they, they, I said, well, you were a little worried they played Jonah Hill? And he goes, no, it was pretty funny. They, um, I guess they did uh, like the naming rights of it. So Brad Pitt, was, he was, they basically sold his life naming rights to the movie. I guess that's what you do. And Paul said he'll do it if he, had, if he could review the script because he didn't want Jonah Hill's character or the, his character to say something that he didn't say, then everyone's going to believe he actually did this, right? Um, and in his reputation was too important to him and he turned down a heck of a lot of money, but they, uh, they weren't able to use his name because he didn't give him those rights because they wouldn't give him strip, uh, script control. And, uh, and I, I think that could be a reason why they, they, uh, casted Jonah Hill as him. I don't know. But, Billy uh, Bean got the jackpot. He got, uh, Brad Pitt. He got, yeah. Billy Bean gives the life rights and he gets Brad Pitt. And then, <laughs> okay. So, um, pretty funny. so what was harder? Was it, was it harder to get? people to invest in your fund or was it harder to sign the players? Well, people to invest in the fund was hard initially. Once Paul came on, um, yeah, he had already raised the money. So he said, look, there's this guy and he's a big time investor. One of the, one of the best investors that the United States has seen um, was going to be investing in his fund. I went over to meet with him in person, stroked me a $5 million check. Within three days, the fund was closed. I had to go from 25 to 26 million just to let the people in. Uh, so it actually, after getting Paul was incredibly easy, uh, to, to do that. So then after that, you know, the idea of our fund, it was supposed to be a five-year fund because the idea was nobody knew how many players would, would sign these deals. And really the exact moment that in my heart of hearts, I knew this was going to work was when I was talking to all these investors and going to all these investor meetings. I mean, hundreds of them. And, uh, Investors would almost all tell me, yeah, of course, like, I believe you, you can build an algorithm to predict who's going to be good and who's not. But, you know, there's no way these players are going to sign these deals. And then I would go to my friends that are players and they would tell me, look, if you do this, every player in the world is going to want to sign these deals. But there is no way you can figure out which one of us is going to make it and which one of us isn't. And so when I had both of those perspectives, it really created this. financial situation that was going to be, in my opinion, incredibly beneficial to all parties. And so 
you know, again, we still didn't know how many people were going to sign. The investors thought it was going to be five years. So we made the fund a five-year fund. I thought it was going to be three years. They all thought I was crazy and it ended up being 18 months and all the money was out the door. Um, which is then at that point we went. So how many how many players was invested in that twenty six million? In that twenty six million, we had seventy seven players. Okay, so what's what's that an average of? of um... It's about three to four hundred thousand per okay. player. Okay, so uh, I think I know the answer to this, but can you give us any names? Uh, well, uh, I we have confidentiality. I thought, I thought you with might our, with our players, but they, you know we don't mind if they they'll come to us and we'll go to them and they go on the record. So we do have the best prospect in baseball right now, Fernando Tatis Jr. Um, Francisco Mejia is another top five prospect in all of baseball that we have. Jose Osuna has been in the big leagues uh, of the seventy seven players in the first fund. And keep in mind, the first fund only closed in December, so eleven months ago. Uh, and we already have 25 in the major leagues, so about two third, uh, about one third of our players in the major leagues. And keep in mind, we have guys we invested in low A that have no chance to be in the major leagues right now. So we're actually expecting uh, more than half our players to make the major leagues. Um, now, that doesn't mean being profitable. Again, just to make it, if our average offer is three, four hundred thousand dollars, you have to play four or five years in the major leagues just to pay us back. So uh, you know, we expect to be profitable. At about twenty percent of our deals, and meaning we'll lose money on about eighty percent. But just the same thing from any investor: if you're investing in ten startup technology companies, and and one happens to be Amazon, Facebook, or Google, it's going to make up for your nine mess ups, you know, tenfold. And that's that's sort of the investment strategy that we have at Big League. Yep, Advanced. just just like a venture capital fund. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, uh, here's another question that you probably uh, can't answer, but um, without going into proprietary information, what are the, some of the factors that are in your models? Because I know in Moneyball, it's all all about um, getting on base percentage, which pro- possibly works for the major league. But does that work for the minor leagues? Um, it is so advanced and so uh, situationally based that on base percentage. The answer is no. On base percentage is not that reliable of a factor. There, there, but there's no factor in and of itself that is reliable. Uh, you have to put everything into context, and and really to, to to discuss this, you have to understand the intricacies of the game of baseball. And uh, um, you know, but I'll try to kind of keep it more simple. So, like a, like a stolen base, yep. right? Like a player, how many steals a player has. A lot of people think, well, that determines how fast a player is, but not really because you can you can steal third base with two outs just about whenever you want. And there are players that get these what we call cheap Junk. steals. So we care, can you steal a base when the other team doesn't want you to? So we'll define the situation as like the seventh inning or later in a certain score of a game. So it could be seventh inning or later in a tie game with two outs and a runner on first base. Like you as a pitcher and as a catcher, you do not want that guy stealing. Can you still steal that bad? That's true speed. Um, it'd be, and it's all about where you are on the field. For Australian football, as an example, um, if you're if you're kicking from these odd angles and your make percentage from 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 odd angles and and distance. It compared to your opponent, compared to what the weather is. I mean, we'd factor all that stuff in and get like an expected make percentage. And you know, that's how we would, again, my, my knowledge of Australian football is not 
very strong. But uh, if I'm trying to equate it, it'd be something similar. Well, it's, to it's a good analogy. And it's, it's got me thinking, have you been approached by other sports? Yes, we have. We, we've been really approached by um, almost all the major sports at this point. Um, and that's really because of our second fund and building the team. So uh, our first fund was a $26 million fund. We got through that in 18 months. We then raised a $130 million fund shortly thereafter, um, uh, which I thought was, uh, was, was, was pretty impressive. Uh, we actually raised 182 million, had to return 52, uh, because the market and the opportunity size just wasn't there. Um, and we did do it at a, a three and 30 model, which is, which is pretty rare in the, in the States at this point. Okay, so three and 30 being 3% management fee, 30% performance. That's correct. Yeah. Carried yeah. interest. Yeah. So with the, with the management fee, we're able to really bring on and really transform the company from a company that invests in minor league players to the best sports predictive sports analysts in the world would join this company. So I talked to Paul DePodesta and also Sam Hinkey. Sam Hinkey was the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, who's been a, a mentor to me. And I said, look, I'm trying to build the best, a team of the best sports analysts in the world here. Where do I start? And like, who's the smartest person we know to, to sort of run this team? And Sam Hinkey told me, well, that's an easy answer. The answer is this guy, Jason Rosenfeld, but there's no way he'll take the job, uh, but he'll be able to point you in the right direction. So I did some digging on Jason. He went to Harvard, was a two-year president of the Advanced Analytic for Sport Club there at Harvard, went to uh, join the Houston Rockets. He's 28 now, so this would have been almost nine years ago or so, and really was worked with Daryl Morey and Sam Hinkie at the time with the Rockets to sort of build that system. And, you know, the pace and space, shoot a lot of threes type of basketball system was really um, largely built by, by Jason. And he had done such great work. He, he actually had met Yao Ming down there and thought that there could be a lot of business opportunities in China. So he went back to college and taught himself Mandarin in about six months, <laughs> became fluent. Yeah, I mean, the, the Jason's a, is really, truly a different level of, of intelligence and just thought there was a business opportunity, said, said screw it, I'm going to learn Mandarin mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and did so. And then the next year, I guess, went to off to the Shanghai Sharks, where he ended up becoming the assistant general manager of the Shanghai Sharks because his models were so good. Um, spent some time there in China, then came back to the States, uh, brief stint working for Michael Jordan in Charlotte. Uh, but then it's kind of saw how a lot of teams just don't listen to advice from analysts. It's kind of like, you're the numbers nerd guy. Like we'll kind of use you sort of, but not really. And he just felt like he wasn't as valued yep. there. So, uh, ended up going to the league office and really helping, um, build a lot of stats for the league office. Like, like they have hustle statistics and he's really quantifying all these things that previously were unquantifiable until he was tapped, he's getting job offers left and right, just turning them all down because he was sort of gun shy by the team model until Magic Johnson came to him and said, look, you know, I'm, with, I'm at the L.A. Lakers right now. This is the best job in basketball. Obviously, there's a lot in analytics because all the teams that are using analytics are the teams that are winning, right? Because I'm an old school guy. I don't know anything about it. Why don't you come? Your office will be right next to me. You'll answer directly to me, and you could have sort of an unlimited resource base. Build the team how you want it and go. 
And yeah, again, I don't know Magic. I've never met Magic Johnson, but for someone like that, like an old school background to have that type of foresight just shows how, how really ahead of his time and really brilliant Magic was to be able to bring on Jason. And, and Jason was doing that. And when I met him and I talked to him and I told him, oh, look, I was trying to build this team and I want to build this sports team. Who do you think? And after going back and forth with me for a couple of weeks, he kind of called me and said, hey, look, I don't want to give this to anybody else. This is my dream job. Like I thought it was working with the Lakers and doing this, but I'd really rather be running the analytics team for Big League Advance, which was probably the second biggest break after, after Paul uh, get, getting Jason to come on. And he had this full list of guys he had worked with at all these areas, these machine learning experts, artificial intelligence guys, PhD statisticians, uh, computer science, uh, de- master's degrees and all of that. And he's like, I want to bring all these guys in. I was like, bring them on. And so, you know, we're now about 20 people deep as a company and um, have really been able to do a lot of work in a lot of different sports. We've been approached by uh, countries, soccer countries and federations uh, to hire us on multi-million dollar deals to to run their, to run their, uh, you know, the analytics department for them in advance of the World Cup in Qatar. We've been approached by several NBA teams wanting to get rid of their entire analytics department, just hire us as consultants because we have the best guys they believe. Um, and, and we've looked at other areas in, in golf, actually, believe it or not, buying and selling horses, and, you know, looking at basically any place where people are making financial decisions in sports based on feel and not based on intelligent modeling and data, we believe we can do it better. And those are the areas we, we were we were looking at. Uh, I, I have to say none of us have experience in the Australian football uh, space, but if there's any listeners out there, it's a great model and I think you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know how it works, the, the, the system, but anyways, so we've been approached by several other sports uh, and really we, we've kind of narrowed it down to one area that we are going to attack. And, uh, you, we have not been this one thing I cannot disclose at this point, but we're about a month or two away from really unveiling something that I believe will cause uber level disruption in, in a certain industry in this in a specific industry in the sporting world, which I'm super excited about, but we're not quite ready yet. Well, that sounds really interesting. And just people that are listening to it at some point in the future, right now at the time of recording, it's, what is it, 8th of November. So just got a got another question. So is this growth in popularity, what you're doing is, there must be new entrants. Uh, is there anyone else trying to do what you're doing? Yes. Yeah, so when we started this, um, there was a couple other people trying well, after we showed that we were getting becoming successful, a couple people started uh trying to do something similar to what we were doing and really all but one has done a, has done a really good job in, in, in attempting to do this. Um, and, and look, all my thing is I want to make sure the players understand absolutely everything they're doing before they make the decision. We have safeguards as our company from a company standpoint built in to make sure of this. We make sure all the players have their own lawyers review the contract their agents, their financial advisors. I mean, even though you're making $5,000 a year, you still have all of these people around you. And additionally, before they sign the contract, we even have a video that we go over 
ask them questions about all the material parts of their contract, and we do not let them sign until they can answer to make sure they understand it completely themselves. Because that's really important to me. Um, and, and in other companies that are in this space, uh, it's important to them as well, really, except for this one other company that's been a really a black eye uh, in the industry. And they're kind of cornering guys saying, sign this contract, we'll give you money now. And the contract's in English and the players speak Spanish. And um, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's really a loan shark type company out there as well trying to say, hey, we're going to give you way more money at like 22% oh. interest rates. Um, that, that's really quite disgusting in my opinion, but yeah, they're really, those two companies are really one in the same. And so uh, again, other, I, I love competition because it means minor league players are getting more money and it means we're helping out more players, which is why I started this in the first place. So I really don't mind good competition. And there are several companies, Panda pooling, Fantex X10 that are doing a great job. And, and from a business standpoint, we might not be getting all the players that we want to get. It's the market's now semi-saturated, but at the end of the day, that's more money going to players, and that makes me happy. It's just that the, the, the other company coming in that I'm not even going to name that is doing it in a very unethical way that um, that I'm really just not happy. So, with. how many players do you have now, and um, what's it like watching them? Yeah, so we've got 134 players right now, and I consider all of them to be family. I mean, it's so. I mean, I watch sixty games a night. Sixty games a night. Now, bits and bits is in pieces of them. So they have MILB TV where you can stream all this, um, and, and baseball you play every day. So I watch my East Coast games, and I East Coast games, and I go to sleep right when the East Coast games end and the West Coast games start. I wake up at five in the morning um, and watch all my West Coast games until everyone comes into the office around seven thirty or eight o'clock, and, uh, and that's when I get to. Get to get to do the real work, the boring work, I guess. The most fun is just watching our guys, and and our guys really like feedback. So we have several players, especially pitchers, that I work with on a on a uh, on an outing by outing basis. So at outing, they'll ask me, "Hey, what did I do here?" And I'll tell them, "Hey, you should have used you done these sequencing instead of that, or you should have used your curveball more here with this guy's a different type of hitter." And really kind of go over a lot of strategy with them, and it's really helped. I mean, we've had a couple guys get to the major leagues, and one of the nicest handwritten thank you notes I got um, it was basically I, I would never have been able to do this without you thank you so much for all your help I mean it was really you know as a 32 year old man very few times I get choked up and, and cry a little bit but that was one of them so it was really really kind of cool to see that we can make a difference um, I've got a question on what you prioritize as as a player that you're investing in is it like the consistent good player that most likely will get you an okay return on your investment or the kind of the freak that could be anything. Like could be a Hall of Famer, but maybe not as consistent. Yeah, you know, it's really funny because we, we do, yes, the answer is yes, we do both. So we might have players that we think are going to make $20 million. So player A and player B, we believe on average will each make $20 million. But one has a 90% chance to make it to the major leagues according to our model, but is just basically going to be a utility player. And the other has a, 15% chance to make it, meaning 85% chance not to make it. But of the 15% or like, part of part of the algorithm is like 5% chance of becoming a Hall of Fame all-star making four or $500 million. Um, and so that averages out to 20 million. So there's completely different types of players. And, and how, we, how we handle that sort of risk 
um, management and allocation. This is a lot of guys, uh, really big time hedge fund guys in our fund that really helped me through this process. But now that with our second fund, we're going to have probably 400 players. So sample size sort of weeds it out. But in our first fund of only 77 players, we wanted to make sure we didn't have too many of one group. Uh, so we, we so you need to yeah you need to diversify your portfolio exactly right exactly right and it, it just sort of worked out that way we we were conscious about it and we didn't want to make sure we had too much of the same thing and it just kind of worked out with people accepting because we we can't control who accepts the deal right so if we're offering this deal to 100 players 40 might say yes but we don't know which 40 yeah <laughs> so we were kind of going slow at first just to make sure we don't get a lot of the same group but but now that Again, we're in our second fund. That's that's not that's not nearly a worry. And it's it's really worked out organically. We're getting a lot of different types of players. Yeah. One last question: Are there any positions in baseball that are easier to predict or invest in uh, than others? Yes. Uh, position players are far easier than than pitchers, um, and that's really due to the injury situation. So a position player get getting hurt is far less likely to ruin their career. Than a pitcher getting hurt, it would be. I would say a pitcher getting hurt, as you said, is very similar to blowing out a knee um, in Australian rules football. But but as a hitter, it's like rolling your ankle. Yeah, it's like you can you can come back from that very very easily. It's not going to affect your career that much, right? Um, except for in very very few cases. So um, that that's a lot easier to to predict now. Uh, if, if I would say they'd be equal if, if pitchers and hit if pitchers didn't get hurt as much as they did. Uh, that said, shortstops of all the positions of position players is the easiest to predict because you simply don't need to be as good offensively as you do in any other position on the field. Um, outside of catcher, but catchers catchers harder to predict because of injuries and a lot of other things. But but shortstops are are definitely the easiest to predict. Right, Michael, um, cricket and baseball are quite similar. I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, but Australian cricket needs a fair bit of help right now. So there might be an opportunity to do, for you to do a bit of work <laughs> with them right now. But um, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for taking the time to have this chat. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love, would love, I, I love cricket. I've, I've been told I'd be, I'd have been a decent bowler if I had grown up in Australia. So I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, depending on how your shoulder is, you might get a job. <laughs> If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to receive all future episodes and also check out previous episodes of the back catalogue. The Richards Report is also on Facebook and Twitter too, so give that a follow to stay up to date with all future episodes and please give me any feedback on what episodes you've liked so far. Thanks to everyone that has given me a rating on iTunes too. I really appreciate this as it helps new listeners find me. That's it for this episode of The Richards Report. See you next time.